Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Okay, not much housekeeping today, except to say that we continue to produce some new videos. So don't forget that we have a YouTube channel now where we are producing little explainer videos of some of the podcasts. So you can find us on YouTube. Uh, Just look for GHCC Pod or Global Health and Childhood Cancer Podcast. Um, And also you can follow us on Twitter at GHCC Pod and find us on Facebook as well. Okay, today I have a really great discussion about a paper that just came out in BMC Public Health. The paper is called A Healthcare Labyrinth, Perspectives of Caregivers on the Journey to Accessing Timely Cancer Diagnosis and Treatment for Children in India. And we will be speaking with the first author, whose name is Dr. Niha Faruqi. And Niha just completed her PhD from the University of Sydney, where she focuses on access to care for children with cancer in India, um, as well as looking at the implications on universal health coverage. And the other author we will hear from is Dr. Ramandeep Arora, who is a pediatric hematologist oncologist at the Max Super Subspecialty Hospital in New Delhi, India. So together, we will be discussing this paper that looks at the lived experience of families as they try to access care. So going from initial symptoms to finding their way to a treatment center. And you'll see that Niha did an incredible job of exploring these family stories in their own words. And so in the paper, there are these profound quotes from the families themselves about what they have experienced navigating their way through the healthcare system. So I would encourage you to read this paper when you get a chance. It is a relatively quick read. But I think it is a very important read if you want to better understand what is the experience of patients and their families as they find their way to care. So I think that's enough for me. I'll let them tell you more about the paper in the episode. So after a brief word about our sponsors, then we will go ahead and get to the show. And now I want to tell you about the new sponsor for our podcast. Resonance Oncology. Resonance is an organization that exists to improve the lives of cancer patients through the use of innovative technologies, education, and research. Imagine a world where preventable cancers are avoided and where every patient receives the best care possible, no matter where they live. Who doesn't want that, right? This is the future that Resonance is working towards. And in fact, to make this goal a reality, they give their software away 100% free to anybody who is working in a low- or middle-income country. So, Resonance was co-founded by Scott Howard, who's a pediatric oncologist and epidemiologist with 20 years' experience in clinical research, translational research, drug development, consulting, and global health. He and his team of experts at Resonance collectively have over 60 years of experience finding solutions to the most difficult problems in global health and pediatric oncology. So if you have a research question or a quality improvement idea, but need some additional assistance or a technology solution to accomplish it, then speak with the experts at Resonance today. You can contact them at info at resonancehealth.org or by visiting the website www.amplifyinghealth.com 
or you can look in the podcast description for a link. Hey, everybody. I am here with Niha Faruqi and Ramandeep Arora, two of the authors of the paper that we are going to discuss, aptly called A Healthcare Labyrinth. Yeah, we will talk about it more. But first, let's have our authors introduce themselves. Niha, Ruman, can you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Tell us who you are and how you got involved in this project. Sure. Um, so I'm Neha Faruqi. Um, I recently completed my PhD from the University of Sydney, where my thesis was focusing on access to care for children with cancer in the Indian health system and its implications for universal health coverage. Kind of got involved in this field after meeting Dr. Ramandeep uh, about six years ago uh, when we were briefly working on a project at an NGO. And ever since, I've just been really interested in this field. Hi, uh, this is Ramandeep here. Um, I'm a pediatric oncologist and based in Delhi. Besides my clinical work, I'm all in um, some advocacy and research work which focus on, focuses on access to care and within access to care on multiple aspects. Uh, of access to care, like abandonment of treatment, uh, time to diagnosis, drug availability, etc. So uh, Neha's project uh, fit in very nicely with the overall portfolio of the work we do. And that's how I got engaged. Very good. Well, Neha, you're the first author on the paper. So why don't you go ahead and talk to us about this uh, this paper? So first, what was the question you were trying to answer? And how did you arrive at this specific question? Yeah, so this study uh, was part of my PhD thesis, and the overall question was really to investigate what are the barriers in accessing childhood cancer care in the Indian health system from the perspectives of the caregiver. And previous literature has sort of touched upon these barriers through questionnaires, but as you'd know, qualitative work is really sort of designed to integrate various insights from um, different sources and different interpretations in order to build a deeper picture. So, and this study hasn't been done before in the Indian setting. And so I thought the perfect way is through qualitative methods. Excellent. And the specific question you wanted to answer was, um, like, what are the barriers to accessing care in India? Is that a good way to That's right. Say yeah. It? So the barriers to accessing care for children with cancer in India from the perspectives of the caregivers. Gotcha. And did you have any experience in this area prior to coming to this question? Like what was your background um, in coming here? Yeah. So I, I'm a chemical engineer, but I decided to oh. pursue public health. And in public health, I have done qualitative work before um, with one of my PhD supervisors, actually. So the methodology wasn't that new to me, but I guess working in childhood cancer care from a research perspective was was new. Gotcha. And Rahman, I mean, you've been in this field for a while. So was this a question that you were excited about that Niha was approaching? And what did you expect um, with this study? Um, there are so many unanswered questions uh, from low middle income countries and specifically India. And I think the reasons are obvious. The uh, clinicians and the healthcare providers have no dedicated time to uh, do research. And so we are trying to knowledge gap by trying to ask and answer whatever questions we can. And uh, to, uh, to help us, there are many um, collaborators from high income countries like yourself, Mark, and like Neha, who have an abiding interest in the global childhood cancer movement. 
And so whenever we get an opportunity to uh, collaborate with them uh, and help get answers, uh, we are happy to do that. And so that's why this was an excellent opportunity to both for Neha to learn and experience and for us to get some answers on vital questions. Yeah, very good. Um, Okay, well, then go ahead and walk us through how you elicited these answers. So we know that, you know, the the Indian healthcare system is quite big. There are a lot of people in India, as I think most listeners are... As mm-hmm. I think all the listeners will know. Um, and so there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to it. So how do you go about drilling down to finding out like what the experience was from these families? So what were your methods? Yeah. So, you know, when you do the reading of this literature, just in general, barriers for childhood cancer care in poor resource settings, there are barriers such as financial barriers, geographical barriers, social cultural barriers that's already been documented. But we wanted to use that as a basis for starting the qualitative methodology. And so just to take you briefly through the the actual method was another colleague of mine, a co-author and myself started what we call as deductive coding, where we have like about maybe six or seven overarching themes or overarching barriers. And then we start comparing and contrasting it with the literature and then we compare it with each other. So that forms the sort of the basis that we are going into this study knowing that there is an overarching theme or umbrella of six or seven major barriers. And then once you start reading the narratives, you start doing some inductive coding where we start um, getting new themes emerging, new sub-themes emerging, which forms a whole other branch of coding. And so, and that's the sort of the approach that we take in qualitative methods to come to the end result in our study, which is we had three broad themes and then within each theme, we had a, a sub-theme. And the other thing was we also took a, a triangulation approach to minimize any of the biases, but also just to get opinions of other co-authors and their analytic inputs into what these codes mean for them from their perspective. And that's how we sort of reached at a consensus that, yep, this is the code, this is the sub-theme, these are the appropriate quotes that go with that theme, and so on and so forth. I see. And when you say code, you're meaning a specific idea or concept that is elicited from the participants, from the parents, as you talk to them. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So, for example, if you have a barrier that's related with finances, that would be coded as a financial barrier. Um, Similarly, you can have the same different types of barriers, and each of those barriers would get their own unique code. Um, But then the the codes would also have subcodes. And you really start learning about these subcodes the more you read the narratives. And not just reading the narratives once, but reading it multiple times, because every time you read, there's a new way of looking at things, I suppose. So, yeah, to make sure I got it. So you, you read the literature and you just got an idea for what general things have been described in terms of what families yeah. experience. And then from there, you had these recorded interviews with parents. Is that the raw data that you had? Um, not just parents. So it was caregivers. So it would be uncles, mothers, fathers, cousins mm-hmm. as well. I see. So the, the close family members that were bringing the kids to care. That's- That's right. Yeah. Okay. And then from those interviews, you weighed them against the codes or the themes that you expected to find. And then you kind of found the ones that were coming to the surface. And between you and someone else who independently listened for the themes, 
you tried to reconcile those and then you had an independent observer as well. I think you said the triangulation of who was saying, you know, yes, this seems like a reasonable way to pull themes from these interviews. Am I kind of getting the essential components? Yes, Sarah Benes, who's a co-author in this, um, she was uh, one of the main points. We would sit together and go through some of the analytic inputs that we had, and we would sort of discuss what kind of codes would be appropriate for this and, and stuff like that. So, Gotcha. Okay. For the subject matter, that makes sense that you have to bring in an expectation of what will be there, but then try to tune your expectation to what is actually there so that then you can draw lines around it and say, this is this concept, this is this concept. So it definitely makes Mm -hmm. sense. One of the questions I had in reading the paper was, you know, the researchers probably bring in their own bias or their own expectations of what may be present. So was Mm -hmm. there a way to sort through that, you know, to try to note what what may be an area where you may be perceiving it in your own lens and um, not through Mm -hmm. the parents' eyes? How do you go about sorting that? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, um, because I was so I was the one interviewing with another interviewer, both of us were doing it, we were so close to the participant. And, you know, the the emotions are quite raw in the middle of the interview. So it is easy for us as interviewers and researchers to sort of get drawn into the emotions and look at it in a subjective manner. So to mitigate these kind of biases, um, again, one way was through triangulation, because the other co-authors were not involved in the data collection, so they were not there and they were seeing the narratives through fresh eyes. So that was one way. But the other way was throughout the process of collecting data and throughout the process of analyzing, we would keep having regular calls with not just Sarah Bernays, but with other co-authors as well, just to get their sort of input on what they perceive of the methodology and if we need to amend it in any any way. And once we do the analysis, if they think anything else could be improved. And so the thing is that these co-authors were not involved directly in the analysis or in the data collection, but they did have their own um, significant, unique inputs. So I, I guess that was the main way that we sort of minimized bias. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, go ahead and tell us about what the setting was that you were conducting these interviews. Like, where in India were you and where were the people coming from that you were interviewing? So it's a multi-center study, and I'll let Dr. Raman expand on INPOG and, and why we did it that way. So we chose two cities, Delhi and Hyderabad. Because it has it was multi-center, we were trying to enroll as many hospitals as possible, both from public, uh, private sector, as well as charitable trust. And as you know, the ethics applications take a long time in countries like India, and I had a, a time limit with my PhD as well. So we got in the end, we got seven hospitals, um, even though we asked many more hospitals to join the study. Um, and then once those seven came on board, I think so in POG, and I'll let Dr. Raman expand on this, has a thing where we have to enroll at least five patients per hospital. So, yeah, Dr. Raman, maybe you can fill in that. OK, so there are two, three things, Mark, you referred to in your questions, and I'll start with the points there. Uh, so you talked about India being a huge country, which it is. And I would also add the word heterogeneous in terms of healthcare. In fact, tremendously heterogeneous in terms of healthcare. And so when you try and investigate something, even if you do it in multiple hospitals or multiple patients, you have to uh, always be conscious that what you may find may not be representative of the country. And so um, so Neha has talked about how there were processes built in the research, conduct of research, which allowed us to make certain biases did keep, uh, creep through. Um, I. I'm looking at a slightly bigger picture in the sense that this is just one small piece in a larger jigsaw 
which we are uh, trying to do and it would complement for example another qualitative work which we are doing which looks more at journeys during treatment and after treatment while neha's looks at uh, journey preceding treatment and diagnosis similarly we are uh, doing a, a quantitative work at a larger level on 70 hospitals with the sample size of nearly 6000 children which is looking at patient journeys and using uh, a uh, geographical information system mapping to uh, see their journeys are these 6000 so, cancer patients yeah 6000 kids with cancer yeah wow so so we just achieved the 1000 mark yesterday so those would complement you know this work and so when you get all this done and you also engage academic partners and ngo partners and clinical partners you then start seeing the true picture or close to the truth as possible because that's the never ending quest to try and get as close to the population which is there so that's the way we are addressing this access to care challenge now what neha was telling was uh, about indian pediatric oncology group was set up almost a decade ago and uh, for those in the west who are very familiar with the role of collaborative multi center childhood cancer research and the benefits of it uh, however it is not something which is available or accessible in low middle income countries so we've been treading that path and organizing ourselves into this cooperative group which finally took place around 5 years ago and we are conducting currently around 28 multi center clinical studies in the country and uh, neha's work forms part of that um so it involves seven centers you need to have at least five centers to be part of an inpox study and also what you would notice is that general clinical trial groups focus on diseases but we have also decided to focus on certain problems unique to low middle income countries so for example access to care is a central uh, task force or subcommittee within the indian pediatric oncology group so that's the context of where this research fits in both in the landscape of access to care as well as in the indian pediatric oncology group very good um well it sounds like you guys have an enormous amount going on within <laughs> the indian uh, pediatric oncology world more than i actually realized so um first of all congrats on the work raman you are always doing amazing stuff but anyway so that it makes sense where this project fits in with all of that so let's go ahead and get to the results now and i think as i was telling you guys i feel like i haven't been as stressed reading a journal article as i was with this one so that's kind of a disclaimer for anyone who hasn't read it yet i mean this uh the patient or the the family narratives feel like each one could be their own novel and so it's just like the tip mm. of the iceberg um as you're reading along the way with these families journeys so i i i rarely get so emotionally involved in a an article but uh i think that's a testament both to uh your work niha and how you're able to represent the family's perspectives so thank you for that but let's go ahead and talk through your findings so you went to several sites in india and you talked with many caregivers of pediatric cancer patients and what did you hear what came up from your interviews thank you mark so like you said it it feels like the tip of the iceberg and i found it really difficult to condense it into one article. Yeah, I could imagine. Um, one can, yeah, you can really write a book on each of their stories. So, you know, the thing about again with qualitative work is that it's each participant has their own unique story, but my job as a researcher is to try and look for the pattern that goes beyond the individual's experience so that I can come up with a theory or or one of these themes. So, 
you know, in qualitative work, there's always so much more you can do. But given what we have, I'll just take you through the broad themes. So from the time that the child gets a symptom in the house to the time that they come to the treating hospital, there's two critical phases. And one is the referral pathway, and the second is the care that's being delivered at the treating hospital. Now, both these phases have their own unique barriers. But if you look at it overarchingly, they've got unique themes, but at the same time, themes that is common across both the phases. So the first thing that we found when we were coding was this theme of time. And in the paper, I kind of give a subtitle as time is either when you slow down, when it speeds up, or when it absolutely stops. And the reason I gave that subtitle is because for some families, they had certain barriers that slowed down their progress towards definitive diagnosis and treatment. For some families, they had other influences which progressed their journey much quicker. And for some other families, they had to wait for indefinite periods of time until the next phase in the referral pathway. And it felt like time comes to a standstill. It just stopped. This whole idea of time is quite important. I can take you through the sub-themes quickly, if, if that's... Well, why don't you tell us the three big themes and then we'll let's walk through each of the kind of the sub themes. Sure. Yep. So, th- so the first one was time. The second one that really stood out from the narratives was this need for social supportive care. And again, social supportive care can either facilitate the progress in the journey or it can deplete the progress in the journey. So again, this had things to do with cultural beliefs or family and social dynamics, but how each of these different layers come together to really impact the the child and the the parents and the family's journey. Um, and then the third, the cumulative impacts of the journey. So what were the overall impacts? And I guess suppose, you know, this ties in with the previous two themes, but it was really looking at, you know, the financial aspects that happen, the impacts, sorry, that happen along the journey, as well as the psychological and emotional impacts along the pathway. I see. So the three big themes, again, to repeat time, importance mm-hmm. of social support, and then the accumulative impacts of the journey. So those are the three like big, broad, overarching domains from which you heard the families relaying their perspectives. And then, yeah. as you were alluding to, you broke these big domains down into what you called sub-themes. Um, and so let's go ahead and focus in on time. And I love the way you structured the paper because you wove the caretaker's narratives in with your own discussion of the different findings. And so why don't you go ahead and walk us through some of the stories that you found. Um, And let's first focus on time and what you heard from Mm -hmm. the caregivers. Yeah, so you're exactly right in the sense that qualitative work really demands one to weave in these different factors together, but within one specific theme and then move on to the next theme. But it's really, if you read the paper as a whole, it's quite interrelated. So the first uh, sort of sub-theme under time was that of the different avenues taken in the referral pathway. So families that live far off places coming to Delhi or Hyderabad had a more erratic referral pathway in the sense that they had more avenues, they had more places to go compared to families who were living in the same city as a treating hospital. So that really was sort of the main sub-theme that impacted the time to definitive diagnosis and treatment. The second major one was the different determinants that influenced the pathways. So, for example, many family and friends would suggest to the family that's seeking care on what kind of care they should seek. Maybe they would say, go for alternate treatment. Maybe they would say, don't go at all. Maybe they would say, you should go straight away to this hospital instead of going to another city. So these were the sort of interactions with close relatives from where they they live that sort of really impacted time as well. 
And then you've got, of course, the other one was seeking things of like alternate treatment would waste time in, in a sense. So a lot of the families that come in India, um, that come especially from rural backgrounds, um, believe that Ayurveda, all sorts of other alternate treatments are also capable of treating cancer. And that's often the first point of contact when they're seeking care. That's known even in the literature to be a cause of delay in getting to definitive diagnosis. So that was another one. And then you've got a third sort of determinant, which was that of this kind of mistrust that a lot of families have in both public sector as well as the private sector. So this is based on either their own experiences or the experiences of other people. And through word of mouth, maybe they were told that, you know, don't go to a private hospital because, and I think there was a quote from that, which actually I'm just going to find and read so it makes more sense. So one father had said, well, basically in India, sometimes private doctors suggest tests for milking money. Everybody knows about it. So that was his preconceived notion when he was in the referral pathway trying to find the next best place to seek care. So there was this sub-theme of, I guess, a determinant influencing the pathway, which was that of mistrust and how that really comes about as a barrier when you're seeking care as well. And then the other two major ones was that of poor knowledge and awareness. So caregivers that do not understand the urgency of seeking care because some of them have never even heard of the term cancer before. They don't know what cancer is. They don't know that it has to be treated, you know, maybe as soon as possible, etc. But on the flip side, you've also got families who met doctors and other families who've been who've gone through this journey and this disease and, and that kind of progressed their knowledge and their journey into seeking treatment. And then the other major determinant in influencing pathways which impacted time was that of patient navigation. So once the patient, and this is not just at the treating hospital, I mean, there's patient navigation issues even in the referral pathway, but we were focusing on what happens at once they reach the treating hospital. And, you know, things like locating rooms, administrative procedures such as filling out forms, standing in long queues, registering for you know diagnostic tests. All of these also were quite time-intensive tasks. So those are the sort of sub-themes that were all related to time. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a wonderful way to break it down because, you know, just listening to you talk through the sub-themes, like I can identify both from reading, from talking to patients and just my own experiences, even in a high-income health system of what patients experience coming to find care. So it mm -hmm. really resonates a lot with me. And I think you did a great job of breaking down those domains. I want to focus on a few of these because as you were talking, you know, there's just so much there to try to explore and try to understand a little bit better. So going back to your quote about mm. the the parent knowing that doctors will order tests to just charge them more money. Ramon, let me ask you, is, do you find this from the healthcare side or from the provider side? Is that a widespread um, feeling or like how did you read that part of the results? Right. So again, let me try and give the broader picture because I think Neha does very good work at focusing on what the question at hand is. So the first thing is, you know, this paper focuses on barriers. And I know you said right in the beginning of your podcast that it's a topic which you want to approach uh, very carefully. So we are not looking at the strengths or uh, the good things happening here. We are trying to identify the problems. And that is okay. You know, we all have problems in our health system. So this is what we are working on. The second thing is that the problem of whether it is access to public health care or access to private care and question about whether the doctors are overcharging or doing unnecessary investigations, etc. 
that perception and that practice obviously transcends childhood cancer. That's the wider healthcare. And mm. so it's not a childhood cancer problem. It's a problem of every aspect of healthcare. The third thing to uh, remember is that because I have worked outside India and I worked in a structured system like the NHS, which is extremely um, logical and evidence-based in everything it does, even you know uh, more than the US where a lot of things are guided by insurance and not necessarily by clinical need. So when you see and contrast the systems and you wonder why are things being done in a particular way, and part of the answer lies that because there are no operating procedures, because there are no systems built in. So when you do something which is different from what somebody else will do or what you expect, that maybe because you are trained differently or you are you don't have the ability to fall back on a guideline or a mechanism or an advice or a pathway. And so with that comes obviously variation in practice and errors in practice. And that then erodes the public confidence because they see one thing happening in one place or one doctor and one thing happening in another place. So I think some of the variation and differences are because not deliberate, but just the way you are trained and understand medicine. Uh, But that creates a perception in the mind of the using public that something is wrong. Uh, And of course, then there is the market-driven forces where uh, you may do certain things which uh, would fetch a higher amount of return. So it's a complex issue to untangle. uh, But yes, uh, all of this feeds into the mistrust uh, which the patient might experience with the healthcare provider. And also, again, taking a slightly wider view on this, the mistrust with the healthcare provider is not just at, in the healthcare industry, it is the same issue with the the police force or the government or you know the uh, real estate developer, whatever. So it's the uh, the society in which we bring. I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to give a perspective and a context to the interpreting when we do these interviews. Yeah, no, I think that's an incredibly important perspective to have because it seems like with any big system and especially the indian healthcare system which is enormous we are getting on it or we're looking at a very granular level at some problems that are inherent in any large systems so i think you said that very well ramon so i appreciate that and so similarly as you were saying with the lack of kind of standardization and practice variation from place to place i want to Go back to this idea of the actual steps that people took through the healthcare system to get from, say, their home to a hospital that could treat a child with cancer. And in the paper, let's see here, there are figure one and figure two. You have these incredible step-by-step processes that certain parents laid out to you about how they got to where they were at. So can you comment a little more about what you heard parents say as they were uh, stepping through the different stepping stones along the way to finally find treatment? Yeah. So, you know, when I was reading the narratives, there were so many different steps and not just in a linear fashion. It was, you know, they would go from one place to the other, but then they would come back to the the previous place and then they would go somewhere else and then come back to the previous place. And what I tried to do was I, I took a sample of narratives and I tried to map this out. And when I mapped this out, I, I think I showed Dr. Raman this as well. It was quite a complex web. So, you know, all these arrows going everywhere. And that's exactly why I titled the paper as a labyrinth, because that's what it feels like. And that's what it is. But this figure one that I have is a 
is an example of one of the families, which is quite typical, and it, it was the case for other families as well. So this family came from another city away from Delhi. And as you can see, the readers read this paper, they'll see that it's quite a long journey. So they go from their home to the local GP, um, to a specialist, and then they go to another city to, to see another specialist, and then an, to the tertiary hospital. Um, and then they go to another tertiary hospital in another city, and then they finally come to Delhi. But even within Delhi, they may go to one or two different clinics or tertiary hospitals before finally arriving in the treating center. And this is, again, you know, maybe from home to the local GP, maybe the first point of contact is not even the GP. It could be, like I said, and uh, a person uh, giving alternate treatment. And also some of the families often start off with self-medication at home and keep doing that until the child's condition gets more worse. So this is the kind of pathway, it is quite erratic, and it's important to remember that each pathway from point A to point B is often repeated. So that's one thing. And then the, the second figure was for a family who is residing in the treating hospital city, where they go from uh, the home to the local GP, to the specialist, and then to the treating hospital. But you have to know that it's not always this straightforward or linear, like I said. So some of the families I interviewed at a private hospital said that they went to the local GP, but then they actually went to like an orthopedic surgeon and then back to a pediatrician and then to a hematologist. So different types of specialists before coming to the treating hospital. And Ramon, from your experience, is this a fairly typical story or is it varied in terms of how many twists and turns there were to patients presenting to you? Um, it's definitely not an uncommon story. Uh, we have to remember that the centers selected were in Delhi, which caters not only to the Delhi uh, area, but North India and East India and Central India and Hyderabad, which is again a major regional center for South India. So you are likely to pick patients who have longer journeys. And that's why I said before that it needs to be complemented with some quantitative work, which can then say, you know, what proportion of patients see 20 doctors before they come right. or what proportion of patients see three doctors before they come. And just to give you an example, uh, you know, this is um, breaking news right now. So of the th first thousand patients which we have got on our database, uh, none of them have reported seeing more than nine doctors or nine visits. So that's the, the largest range. So we're not talking about median here or anything else. Mm -hmm. And that would help us give context and quantify uh, these journeys. For, but we know anecdotally that uh, people who have seen 20 healthcare providers before they finally got their diagnosis and started their treatment. So it is um, it is not unusual, but not necessarily representative of the entire system or country. Gotcha. Okay. Well, it's excellent that you uh, had the foresight to record those data as you're building your database. So I look forward to hearing more from that. Okay, well, why don't you go ahead, Niha, and talk to us about the second big theme uh, with importance of social support. So how did you break that down into sub-themes and what specific quotes did you hear from parents as you were looking at this? Yeah, sure. So with social support, a lot of people um, think of it as um, psycho-oncology or counseling needs, which is also true and, and it's also very much needed. But what we found in the narratives were a lot of the um, caregivers were talking about this dependence on religion or this dependence on their family dynamics or the relational dynamics. 
and also how that impacted their journey. So the first sub-theme was the cultural influences, where again, coming back to that issue of seeking alternate treatment, um, where a father, and I'll just read the quote again, uh, Mark. So the quote says, so we're giving, he's talking about his child who has metalloblastoma, and he says, quote, we are also giving him paneer, which is cottage cheese, made from the milk of the best cow, and we are also feeding him the pure urine of the cow's calf as well. So this is an example of the cultures that played upon the journey. And then this, of course, it also goes into religious beliefs where some cultures or some religions don't permit certain things to happen. And you can read more examples of that in the paper. And the second sub-theme was that of family and social dynamics where families who often come for treatment have other responsibilities in terms of other children that they leave behind. And then as treatment or the journey progresses, their duties and their concern also increases as as the time goes on and how that impacts the journey as well. And then the the third sub-theme was that of, sorry, not sub-theme, but the third issue within the sub-theme was that of accommodation and food. And Again, there's a couple of quotes here. For example, a father of a child with rhabdomyosarcoma says, I spend the day here and I stay on the road at night. I am lying here till evening and I don't even get food to eat. I don't get a chance to bathe for two to three days at a stretch. So these are clearly barriers as well that happens, again, not just at the treating hospital. It was mainly at the treating hospital, but also during the referral pathway wherever they were sent. And then the fourth issue within this theme was that of the healthcare provider and the patient support or the relationship between the two, where some caregivers recounted negative experiences from certain healthcare providers, you know, maybe due to the doctor's dismissive attitude or maybe the type of inconsistent referrals that they were made to experience. Um, and so they felt that there was a lack of social supportive care in that sense as well. And so all of these issues were the major sub-themes within the theme of social supportive care. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I think of of the sub-themes I've heard so far, you know, the, the issue of supportive care is one that is talked about significantly and is well reported in the literature. So I know that, you know, most treatment centers are paying attention to it. So Ramon, as you were hearing the experiences of these parents, um, and thinking about, you know, as the health system there grows, how were you thinking about the social services that they need or that were already available that maybe were not being connected to the parents? Um, so, yes, yeah, so I would use the word supportive and social care because mm-hmm. it's not supportive care in the traditional medical sense. But yes, thank more, you. Uh, more the uh, support around the finances and the journey and the navigation. Now, the social care is generally either or, you know, in certain settings, again, going back to the UK example, be provided by the government. And socialism and social state is more uh, well entrenched in Europe than maybe some of the other high income countries. Now, that system is uh, obviously overwhelmed completely within India because of the huge population burden and the relative poverty. So whatever is there and there is something there is clearly inadequate. Now, when you have this huge uh, gap of lack of social care combined with the extreme poverty or at least variation in income levels within the country, that then creates a huge need or a huge gap. So uh, there are organizations, not-for-profit organizations, as well as certain government initiatives, which are trying to fill that gap. 
to some extent, but there is always unmet need and there's always more work to be done. The other aspect is that just because you have created something doesn't mean you can access it. And there's some good work done in Indonesia by Saskia Mostert et al., where they have shown that just availability of something doesn't automatically mean you get it till you build in systems to make sure that the patients are facilitated to be able to access those resources. So, so there is an unmet need because of a, a huge demand and lack of resources that has to be filled in. There are efforts going on for that. That is not just giving resources, but also providing the navigators, the people, the facilitators to be able to access those resources. And that would be, uh, and that has an ongoing process and has to constantly be increased in scope so that it reaches the largest number of people possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I hate to say it, but our time is coming to an end and I just can't believe it because there's so much here to cover. But Niha, why don't you go ahead and walk us through the sub-themes of the third big domain that you identified, which is the accumulative impact of the journey. Yeah, so very briefly, this was, again, I think the thing about these the two critical phases is that the referral pathway is intrinsically linked to the treatment experience. And so when you go th- from the symptom onset up to the time you start treatment, your emotions um, get heightened, your resources get depleted. And so therefore, we called it an accumulative impact because it keeps going and it keeps building up. So within this theme, we had the sub-theme of financial impacts because the longer you take in this journey, the more your Uh, money gets depleted. So people start selling off their livestock or personal properties, or they start borrowing money um, and taking a loan. And also the breadwinner of the family has to take leave from work, which results in a loss of income. Um, And then the other uh, sub-theme was that of ongoing emotional and psychological impacts. So, you know, even though we were interviewing the families um, at that point in time in the hospital, a lot of them were recalling sensitive incidents that occurred during the referral pathway, which burdened them psychologically at that point in time when we were doing the interview. So they kept going back to recall what happened. And so that really shows it's an ongoing psychological impact. It doesn't just occur when you hit the hospital. So those are the two sub-themes within that theme. Yeah. And it was this one that really, oh my goodness, it got me. Like I just about teared up reading this paper, this quote from one of the parents under this cumulative psychological impact of the pathway, where they said, after going there, uh, I guess one of the hospitals, I felt my condition was like a dog. The child was in so much difficulty and was just wrapped in a towel the entire night crying. Like it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to hear that, like, you know, read it in a paper. Um, so I can imagine that sitting there in front of the parents hearing these stories was quite an experience for you. So let me just ask, like, what, what were you feeling as you were sitting there and listening and, um, you know, trying to both take in from a clinical perspective what they were saying, but also just from the, the human side of things? Mm, that's a great question. So, you know, in the narrative, there were lots of really powerful quotes. And it was really difficult to just choose one and and, and put it in there. But during the interviews, um, and this is something I've been telling many colleagues, there was hardly any interview where I did not hand over a tissue across the table. A lot of the caregivers broke down in the middle of the interview. A lot of them were really feeling quite sensitive about the topic. And of course, we didn't do it in, in, in front of the children. But still, um, it was very obvious of you know the psychological and the emotional impact 
that it had on them. Um, for me, I, I think for the past six years, even though I haven't been involved directly in research, but I do keep going and volunteering every year for a couple of months. I'm, for lack of a better term, I'm kind of used to to being involved with such families. And so even though it, of course, it was an emotional experience, I had gone in prepared and, and knowing um, kind of what, what the outcome would be or what kind of stories to expect. So it was really, it was difficult, but at the same time, like I said earlier in the, in the methodology that we, we we took, from time to time, I would talk with Sarah Bernays and let her know that, you know, these were the concerns that were coming up. How should we deal with them in the next set of data collection and, and so on and so forth. And also an interesting thing just to add to that was one of the fathers, I remember after the interview, after we finished recording, he came up to me and the other interviewer who was who was also with me, and he said that talking to us was the best thing that happened to him since coming to Delhi. Um, and that really struck a chord because many of these families come and they f- it's quite a solitary nature. It's, it's quite a solitary experience to, to feel when you come to Delhi by yourself and they had nobody to speak with. Um, they're in the middle of a very busy public hospital. And we were the first people that he actually spoke to and he opened up about his experience and his and, and his journey and his feelings. And after the interview, he thanked us for doing the interview, even though we should be the one thanking him. So that really shows the extent to, to which, uh, you know, these families feel what's happening. And yeah. Yeah, I think that's well said. Okay, well, in the closing few minutes, um, can you both tell me, you know, looking at the study as a whole, what were your biggest takeaways from the study? And how do you hope this information will be used to improve care in the near future? Um, Yeah, so I think I'll go first. Um, For me, I think the take-home message was that often when families come to the treating hospitals, um, and I wrote this in the paper as well, that maybe, you know, healthcare providers, not just the doctors, but those um, at different levels of the the health system should be really cognizant of what the family has gone through and reflect and understand that the referral pathway is, again, as I said, intrinsically linked to the treatment experience. So that's one thing. The other thing was that because of this and because of the journey that they've gone through and because we had the opportunity to do it through a qualitative study, we understand the deeper picture, which for me is that there really needs to be an increase in social supportive care. And again, not just through psychologists or counseling, but different types of interventions um, to do with different types of cadres in the hospital. So maybe the way the doctors um, interact with the patients or the nurses um, and and that kind of stuff. But also the other thing that I wanted to mention was a lot of the delay occurs in the referral pathway. I mean, we haven't seen a study that really measures the time and maybe Dr. Raman's study, once it's completed, we'd get a better picture. But to really address the delay that happens in the referral pathway, India needs to have a really strong healthcare system structure, especially in the public domain. Um, And so investing in primary healthcare, investing in secondary healthcare, which is often the first point of contact for these families, will make a difference before they hit the tertiary treating hospital. And then the last thing I would say was um, with qualitative work, it's always important to engage different types of stakeholders. And I think, you know, even the WHO is now really taking, um, they're really looking forward to engaging more with qualitative work. And so a take-home message would be to really engage with not just healthcare providers, but also with the caregivers, um, especially in the sense that we focus on a a patient-centered healthcare environment. So I think that would be nice to have their input also, not just into studies, but also a higher level into the policymaking agendas. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, Rahman? Um, the first take home for me from this work was that a lot of this is something which we maybe are aware of anecdotally in our work, but it's never been investigated uh, systematically and put it the way it has been in this work. And so uh, that itself allows advocates, allows clinicians, allows policymakers, allows uh, administrators and patient groups to see and realize that these are genuine problems and not a figment of the imagination. The other take-home is that in this research, along with medical specialists and researchers, also was involved CanKids, which is the largest NGO or not-for-profit working in India in the childhood cancer space. And so then automatically, they are users of such information when they lobby the government and other organizations to bring about change. So the engagement of civil society in such research, as well as the fact that we are able to demonstrate these findings, which is part of a larger picture of other work going on access to care, is my take home from the work which you've done so far. That's very good. Well, I want to thank you both for this work and for talking through it with me. It is incredibly important, and you both just articulated some very key points that follow from it. So thank you for your work. Thank you for giving voice to what these families are going through. And we look forward to seeing where it goes from here. So thank you, Mark. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Thank you both.